Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Vine for June 14th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. All right, exciting show tonight here in about 20 minutes. Elliot Morris of The Economist will join us. Elliot's been on the show multiple times, but I believe this is the first appearance he's made since he's been with The Economist, but he's still doing great work, just like he did when he was had his own blog, The Cross Tab, and he may have even had a, a stop somewhere in between. So we're going to talk with Elliot about modeling and forecasting and numbers and different states all around the nation. But until then, we got things to talk about, really too much to talk about. But we're going to start right off in Georgia, because on Tuesday night, uh, the eyes of the nation, at least political nation, was on Georgia, and it was not good. Um, I did notice that um, a lot of Republicans said, oh, it's, it's local issues. It's, it's these, these uh, poorly run Democratic ca- uh, counties. Um, Catherine, I'm going to come to you in like Fulton. But then, Tim, you reported problems up in Chattooga, and the uh, Republican commissioners of both my county, Floyd, and down the road in Cobb, also were upset about how this thing was handled. So this is not – this shouldn't be a partisan issue, and for a lot of people on both sides of the aisle, it's not, although some people are trying to spin it that way. Catherine, you live in Fulton County where some, by no means all, of the problems are going on. What are some experiences you heard about? Well, um, a, a close acquaintance of mine uh, got to her voting location at 7 a.m., when the polls opened and she voted at noon. So that was five hours in line, including a rainstorm and, you know, all kinds of the heat and the whole thing. Um, you know, Fulton County has had uh, problems voting in, in the voting process ever since I've lived here, which is now going on 25 years. Um but this was more. This was, you know, it it was ridiculous. And there's no, uh, unfortunately, well, unfortunately, the places that were most affected by these problems were in uh, precincts that were predominantly African American. Uh, you could ju- you could tell that just by looking at the news footage. Of the lines, they were almost entirely black people, and um, there were a lot of you know there were a lot of stories. There were a lot of interviews with people. I, I, one interview that really struck me was a woman who said she she was all in her scrubs like she was going to work, and uh, she said that she decided to vote on her way to work, and she was concerned that she was going to lose her job because it took her three and a half hours or whatever to vote. So I think there's just a lot of problems. And, you know, it was a convergence of a bunch of things. 
in my opinion. It was the, you know, extra time it took to sanitize the machines after each voter. That's one thing. Uh, I think this idea that because there was social distancing that that took longer, I don't buy that. I mean, it only takes two seconds to walk six feet. So I don't think that was, I, I don't, I think that's a illegitimate argument. But this is a new voting system that was malfunctioning. Apparently, I heard on Georgia Gang this morning, uh, Kathy Willard was talking about the fact that there were power problems. So apparently these machines use more power, and so there were power outages or, or power limits, and that's why sometimes the, that's one of the explanations for why some of the machines didn't work in certain locations. So there were just a lot of problems. And the thing is, they had an extra two months to figure this out. And for this to be such a cataclysmic failure, is just, it's embarrassing and it, it absolutely is voter suppression. I don't care what anybody says, but you look at the precincts where the problems were, <clears throat> I just, it's just horrifying in 2020. What did, what were your experiences, Tim? What happened in Stuga? Well, my goodness, like you said, they they had months, months to get ready to give this new system a proper rollout. And first of all, we had glitches and delays all day that required the, um, polling places up here to stay open an extra hour. Then the the count coming in was just painfully slow in the small county. And about 1230, they finally said, okay, we got the final results. The radio, who was broadcasting live up here, signed off the air. Ten minutes later, the superintendent uh, of elections walked out and told them, uh, wait, guys, we got a problem. Our second largest box had a 600-vote error. And we're not going to know the results of these elections until tomorrow morning. <laughs> now, we're talking about 4,500 votes. Maybe not that. And so all the candidates up here, and there were several contested elections, including one for our lone commissioner who was fighting for his political life and still is. He's in a runoff. Uh, They were waiting to see, you know, what was going on. Not only that, but then we were looking at, like, the congressional candidates uh, in the Marjorie Green race. They were wondering, well, am I going to be positioned second? Is Chattooga going to help me? Just that and the other. All that went on. And so we had to wait till the next morning. But, Catherine, that, that's nothing compared to what happened in David's County, is it, David? Yeah, it went on forever, and it was so bad that the commission chair, and um, I think that means he's appointed by his or her, I mean, it's a, it's a mixed-gender body, 
the five commissioners select the person to be the commissioner, meaning right. he has the you know approval of his uh, uh, five legislative body. Uh, Scotty Hancock, he came out and he sent a letter because he had heard some of this about oh you know it's all these Democratic counties, counties that just can't get their ants to the picnic, and he said look. These machines just didn't work, and you know what? It doesn't matter if you vote Republican, Democratic, or Independent. We live in a democracy. Your vote deserves to be counted, each and every one. And I thought, my goodness, that's what I got to hear. Mike Boyce of, of Cobb County echoed that same sentiment. Um, the machines apparently were faulty, and they spent a bunch of money on these machines. Um, you know, it's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. It's back. When we first made these machines, I don't think we knew that the research by University of Michigan hadn't been done. And we didn't know some of the perils. And we saw what happened in 2000 with the very confusing butterfly ballots. And so we were like, hey, that's a great thing to get these um, really simple, straightforward machines to use um, to do electronic voting. In the meantime, there became a lot of question marks. And at the same time, the technology did get out of date on the old machines. And, but the questions were out there, so you would have to think that more thought would have been put in, and maybe even for a time thinking about like an optical scan system, which is you know more paper based, still counts the votes pretty fast because you shoot them in through it like a scantron reader, like the old test. But they just pushed through and got these machines. Well, you would think it's just like if a, a government entity buys a bunch of laptops, you can debate whether you not should buy the laptops, but if you buy them, they should work. Some of these suckers didn't work straight out of the box, and they're only going to get used a few times uh, every two-year period. Um, ridiculous to think about. Catherine, back to your point well, about the problems in African-American areas. I heard that, and I don't know if this is just the metro area statewide, 80 predominantly, uh, predominantly black precincts in the state of Georgia were closed down since the last election. I mean, that just stands mm-hmm. the reason. It doesn't matter if it's a gas station, uh, you know, post office. If you close down one, there's going to be more business at the others. That's just well, my that mm-hmm. And so they didn't even think about that, that did they, Catherine? <clears throat> that was the other problem in Fulton, and I think in some other counties too, I think DeKalb, they merged precincts because they, I think, I, I haven't confirmed this, but I think it was because they lacked enough polling workers. Because of the COVID-19, there's a lot of uh, poll workers because a lot of the poll workers are elderly people. It's sort of a, you know, I mean, at my polling place, it's all elderly uh, people that were not elderly, but, you know, a lot of them are retired, and this is their little thing that they do a couple times a year or every other year. And uh, so a lot of those people couldn't do it because of their age or their um, health situation. So they were at a real shortage of polling workers, so I, I believe that's why they merged these precincts. But some of the notifications of this of these merged precincts didn't go out until a few days before the election. So that adds a whole nother level of, um, of voter suppression, because if you're used to voting in your neighborhood and you can walk or get there easily, but now you've got to go across you know, town, maybe not that far, but it's still an additional barrier to people getting to the polls. And with fewer poll workers and this, these added um, steps because of, um, because of sanitization and 
uh, social distancing and all these things. Um, it just adds to the problem. And these were not unknown factors. Like, everyone knew. I mean, I remember when I, when this COVID-19 and we first started talking about elections, I remember saying, oh, well, these poll, we're going to have a shortage of poll workers. It was obvious because there's always elderly people working at the polls. I mean, these were not new, this was not new information that just came out last week. So uh, it was just a failure on so many levels, and it um, and and they better get it together because it's not going to be any better in November. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tim, I want to ask. I want to make a point and ask you a question off of that. I'm really glad that if if it was going to happen, it happened in the primary. Now, there's some people that probably lost by five points um, and or failed to make a runoff by five points that probably hate my opinion, and I understand. But if it was going to happen, then hopefully the pressure is on to fix this, get more resources, make more uh, resources equitable. LeBron James even put light on this. Stacey Abrams, she founded Fair Fair Fight. They can identify the problems and put pressure on there in the next few months. Tim, are you hopeful that that will happen? No, the problems piled on top of problems. David, they had a soft rollout in the municipal elections in several counties with these machines last November. They said they had worked everything out, but then the opposite happened. There was a human error made worse by the fact that a bunch of poll workers who quit because of the coronavirus were replaced by a bunch of new people who had little to no training on the new machines. For instance, you're supposed to plug in, I think, four different things in certain power outlets to get one machine up and running, and a lot of them didn't know how to do that. Eight-hour waits happen in a lot of these polling places. Many of the worst areas Catherine mentioned uh, were, were in precincts where minority voters were in the majority. Secretary of State uh, Brad Raffensperger, who had never run a major election before, took no responsibility, of course. Instead, he sought to blame poll workers and local election officials. Of course, he targeted Fulton and DeKalb because they're Democratic counties, he did mention Republican counties. Ten percent of the polling places were actually closed or had to move because of the virus. If it was, say, in a senior center, well, they had to move it. Any, any high place with a high traffic area during the time of polling, they, they, they had to move it. And a lot of times, the voters didn't even know anything about it. In November, guys, the turnout may be, I don't know, three times what it was the other day. We could have a disaster of biblical proportions on November the 3rd, and we have so many problems to work out with this thing. I... I don't know. I don't know. You know what? The answer is to vote by mail, but you know, I, I don't, I don't get a vote on that. Yeah, Catherine, Tim's right. Need more vote by mail. No excuse. Just so they can get people out of those lines and get them to vote early. Also, more early voting dates. Um, you know, maybe three straight weekends, um, and then from seven to seven or seven to nine. Even I don't know how late they go sometimes. 
on a, uh, several days at some point, too. Do you think that the Republicans will at least say, hey, we have to have a semblance of a democracy and listen to Republican Mike <laughs> and listen to Republican <laughs> Scotty Hancock and say, look, every vote counts, whether it's a Democratic or a Republican ballot. Are they going to do that? Are they going to do what Brian Kemp has been accused of for several years now? Well, I don't think they're going <clears> to <throat> expand early voting because they don't like early voting. Nope. Um, nope. The other thing I noticed when I did early vote that there weren't any early voting lo- – the early voting locations were far and uh, not close to downtown, which I thought was an interesting challenge. Um, I, I, think that, I think that voting by mail is going to be really key. But the other part of this that we can't ignore is that these kind of um, barriers – and delays also stop people from wanting to vote. So right. there's going to be a, a a percentage of people, I don't know what it would be, that are going to say, oh, I had so much trouble voting in the primary. Screw it. I'm, I don't have time. I don't want to lose my job. I don't have a babysitter. I, I can't spend five hours in line. So they're just not going to show up. And that's the part that is really hard to man to to uh, change, it's really hard to change someone's mind once they've had a really bad experience, and then you're asking them to to potentially go through it again. <clears throat> so that's the thing that really concerns me. Um, you know, I will wait in line for hours if I have to. I have the luxury of working someplace where I can call and say, "Hey, I'm still in line. I'll be there as soon as I can." and for the most part, I'm probably going to be fine. But most people don't have that luxury. Most people have time clocks to mm-hmm. punch and babysitters <clears> to pay <throat> and children to pick up from school yeah. and all kinds of – and then we're also – we don't know where we're going to be with the pandemic at, in November. We don't know if we're still going to be uh, sheltered in place, what's going to be open, what – you know, what we don't know. We, we can't know that until very soon. Short. I mean, we just don't know. So there's a lot of challenges, and uh, I don't, I don't have a lot of confidence in uh, the parties and the party in power to uh, address them in a, you know, reasonable and fair way. Unfortunately, Tim, um, right. I'm going to have a serious part of this, and I'm going to have a little bit of fun, um, but pointing out that somebody had. Um, you know, really shined a light on this. You know, a lot of people, including those same two Republican county commissioners, have called on Brad Raffensperger to resign if he doesn't feel he can fix this. You know, if you can't fix this, you need to resign. Um, First part of the question, do you think he'll resign? And if he resigns, I want to see what you think of my perfect solution. You know, LeBron James showed a real interest in Georgia elections. (laughs) I say Brian Kemp appoint him Secretary of State, and we let him play um, on the side for the Hawks. Um, yeah. Do you think seriously, Brian? Uh, I mean, do you think Brad Raffensperger will even even entertain for an iota uh, resigning? Yeah, uh, <laughs> absolutely not. He's already shown us what he's going to do. He's gonna he's gonna uh, pivot and wheel and 
and point the finger at somebody else, and he's going to ask the legislature, and he already has, to allow him to investigate. And with that, David, I am going to pause and ask you to welcome our guest on. Absolutely. And we'll get back into the numbers on the other side of this, but we are so glad to welcome back for multiple times now, now of The Economist, Elliot Morris. Welcome, Elliot. Howdy, y'all. How's it going? Good to have you on. Now, Elliot, uh, back when we've had you on the past, I know you're working your own blog, Crosstab. You may have had something else in there, but you hadn't been on since you've been with The Economist. Tell us just generally about your work um, with that publication. Yeah, well, my work is mostly the same as it was uh, back when I was uh, on my own blog. Uh, we we just released this big election forecasting model, which I'm sure we'll get the chance to really dive into. And that takes up most of my time during election years. Uh, but then there's just you know traditional political reporting. Uh, it's it's been a great a great gig so far. Yes. Well, Elliot, we were thinking about doing the election modeling, but you know we thought you might be gardening and wanted to get deep into that, so we don't we don't want to push in a corner. Um, no, um, so tell us how is this model? We, I mean, the Economist that is a heady publication that understands numbers. How is the uh, um, Economist election forecast different from other ones we may see? Well, our model is well. You're right; it's rigorously empirical. Um, but just like our approach to our other journalism, it's also cautious. Uh, the model tries to be what we what we describe as humble about what it knows about the world. So when it sees a poll that says, you know, Joe Biden's up five in Iowa, it's going to take that number, but it's going to factor in a lot of other information, too, like how Iowa voted uh, in the past couple of elections. So, you know, a, a D plus five poll in Iowa, for example, would be a pretty large break um, from how the state has voted recently. Uh, and it's also going to it's going to average together the other polls, too, in the state and just sort of be conservative about uh, about big jumps and uh, in, in moving the polls. Um, and 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 we think that this more conservative approach to poll aggregation is also sort of more fitting about what we know of the real world. Some of these other models might be whiplashed by a big national CNN poll, for example, that shows Joe Biden up 14 percentage points. Our models not going to do that. Um, and then the other big thing that really sets our model apart from some of the ways that the other models work is that it tries to correct for underlying patterns of partisan non-response in the polls, whereby some news event would cause members of one political party to not pick up the phone like it might, um, like they might do otherwise. And that would cause artificial shifts in the polling numbers that are reflecting who's picking up the phone, who's answering the surveys rather than true movement and public opinion. So our model is going to take that into account where other, other pollsters don't. Yes. Now you mentioned polls that come in that are outliers. Um, I know you've tweeted about it today. Probably the most uh, maybe fascinating, maybe curious number I've seen in the entire election was that poll from Arkansas today showing Joe Biden down just a few percentage points. I mean, pretty much margin of error. Um, A, have you put it in the model? Or B, what were the flaws? Or is that poll possibly dead on? 
so that poll I am pretty convinced is wrong. I would definitely take the under on that margin of victory for uh, for Biden. So you know, I, I think I think Trump's closer to getting 60% of the vote, a 20 percentage point margin, than he is a, a two percentage point margin, and that's just that's just based on how the states voted in the past. Uh, and we, if we were really seeing a Trump plus two election in Arkansas, the national numbers would be closer to Biden plus 30. I mean. This is a pretty implausible, closer to impossible polling number, to be correct. And the reason it's so wrong uh, is that the sample that they used was uh, of people who responded to the poll via text message, which isn't in and of itself a bad way to conduct a poll, but you're going to get a pretty unrepresentative sample when you do it that way. Um, it, it seems like the people who were more likely to respond to this poll were more educated, and then the poll didn't take that into account. So just like polls underestimated Trump's support in 2016 by not having enough uh, non-college educated folks in, in their sample, that seems to be the culprit for this pretty wonky number. And to answer the, you know, to answer the third part of that question, we haven't put it into the model yet. You know, we're having some ongoing discussions over the uh, the the quality of data that a pollster needs to meet before we aggregate their data. And if we in, if we do in, input this poll into the model, we're sort of saying, you know, we're going to accept all information, no matter what, even if we know it's a bad poll. And that's probably not a, a great way to go about the scientific process. But uh, we might reconsider that later on. Yes. Well, I mean, it's going to be interesting to watch, and then this may make other firms decide to poll Arkansas, and particularly that Little Rock Congressional District, um, which I know has been in play in the past, because if Arkansas were to play that much statewide, that might really flip that. Well, I've got a two-parter, and I'm going to pass to St. Catherine and Tim. Um, if you had a state to say, I'll bet the House on it, the model has it right. And now we're not talking California and D.C. We're talking about states that are sort of in that 15 battleground play. States that you say Joe Biden is going to win. And then a state where you're like, it's in play, but Donald Trump's going to hold it. What are those two states? Well, I think that the conventional wisdom over Texas is probably a bit too pro-democratic. So I would pick that in my latter state. Uh, I think Trump's more likely to win there than some of the other analyses and some of the current polls are showing. And again, that's for two reasons. First is we are pretty far away from the election now. And so these polls are pretty rough indicators of what's actually going to happen in November. So our default should be that the state's going to vote closer to how it voted last time. And that was about uh, 12 percentage points on the margin. I, I well, our, our expectation is that Texas should vote about 12 percentage points on the margin to the right of the nation. That's a middle ground between how it leaned toward Trump and toward Romney. Um, and so these D plus zero polls, D plus one polls in Texas are sort of shaking up that prior, I think, a bit too much. Now, on the other hand, I think Arizona is a great opportunity for this first pick, this Democratic uh, upset, uh, upset pick. Now I don't, you know, I don't think that I'm, I'm not picking these states as assigning, you know, binary win probabilities, right? Like I'm not going to call Arizona for Biden right now and Texas for Trump. But what I will say is that Biden has an upside in Arizona that uh, we might miss if we're just staring at the 2016 map. 
there seem to be some underlying trends in party registration there that are really helping the Democrats start getting out more Hispanic and young voters. You know, we saw this shift in 2018. It's sort of the same story. Yes. Well, I'm going to pass this over to Catherine, and then she'll go to Tim. Catherine? Hey, nice to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you're staying safe. Yeah, happy to be back. Washing your hands and wearing a mask and all those things. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it's, easy to, it's easier to call into a show, right? I'm not putting myself at risk here than I would be going to your studio. Right. Exactly. Well, we don't have a studio, so that's great. Um, we're well. all calling in. Um, I want, I, I'm always, um, at, well, especially since 2016, I'm very uh, leery or anxious about um, the polls at this stage. I just, I'm like, well, I, re- I remember 2016 and we all thought Hillary was going to win. At what point do we think, do you think, that the polls are really going to be reflective. I mean, I, I understand that right now they're, they're giving us, you know, the sort of state of things right now. And we can sort of, you know, forecast to some extent that, you know, it looks good for Biden right now, but we all know that these things can change rapidly. At what point do you think that we can have a great deal of confidence in these polls and what are the um, – it's two questions, really. What are the – how are the pandemic and the, the recent uh, protests and uh, violence against black people, how are those going to play in – do you think they will play into these, this polling? Well, the first thing I'll say is you're right to be skeptical – of polling. And and that's not because polls are bad and don't tell us anything about the race, right? But as you know, they're just snapshots in time. And we know those snapshots can change. Um, But on election day, we should have a good amount of confidence in what they say. So this is sort of a cop-out. I'm saying, yeah, you know, treat them them with a bit of uncertainty until the day that they matter, (laughs) right? That's not a, that's not a, you know, a great position for a forecaster to be in, but to sort of quantify this stuff, right? Uh, any any poll on election day is going to have closer to like a six or seven percentage point margin of error rather than the two or three percentage point margin that a pollster usually tells us. And that extra uncertainty comes from uh, poll, the, the way that pollsters uh, generate their estimates today are much different than the way polls worked in the past. Maybe at one point in American history, uh, response rates to polls were high enough to where you didn't have to weight them. You didn't have to adjust them to be demographically representative. But nowadays you do. And those adjustments cause more uncertainty in the actual polling data than they report uh, because we have to, um, uh, we, we also have to adjust the poll for likely voter filters, which we might get wrong. Um, and, and so on election day, you should expect them to be right if a candidate is up by 10 points. But if they're not, I guess technically there's a chance that the so-called loser could, could win. Uh, but, then, but then today, the, that margin of error we think is closer to like 14 percentage points on average. Um, so all, all, again, all these polls saying that Biden is competitive in Texas should be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, the ones that say he's up in Arizona, I guess, also should be taken with a grain of salt, and, and that goes for the Midwest, too. So you're right to think about these things skeptically, 
um, our model tries to quantify this error, this skepticism in a way that, you know, we can put a number on and that is helpful. But, uh, you know, polls, polls are imperfect. They're good measurements, uh, but they're not, you know, they're not hyper accurate and they never really can be. The, this extra source of uncertainty in 2020, of course, that, as you know, is the pandemic. Um, and, and I guess there's also some underlying shifts in public opinion uh, around the George Floyd protests and just general unrest and anxiety in America right now that also goes for the economy. That could mean we should be treating these polls with extra uncertainty now. And, and again, our model tries to account for this extra uncertainty, but uh, at, at some point it's a guessing game. We don't really know what happens when the economy, uh, what, what happens to voter behavior when the economy goes from a 15% unemployment rate to a 20% unemployment rate, for example, that could turn a bunch of Trump supporters into skeptical Biden voters because things are just so bad. Or it could be that by that time, anyone who's persuadable on the economy has already been persuaded and there are just diminishing returns to, to the blowout. So, so listen, I, I would put more, more stock in the polls themselves come, come the fall. A after Labor Day, especially, they're going to be pretty close to what we see on election day. But there's also, uh, you know, again, there's just a chance that the polls are wrong like they were in 2016. They're not perfect measurements. Um, so we should never treat them as perfect. Thank you. That was a very good answer and very appreciated. It gives me a little more sure, yeah. um, confidence, I guess. And I'm going to pass it to Tim. Thank you, Elliot. Yeah. Good evening, Elliot. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, in 1948, I, I want to talk about something um, that began really in 1948 that has been a pretty accurate indicator as to where the election stands in any given moment. And that's in presidential approval. In 1948, Harry Truman, during the course of that year, gained 15 points in his approval average. And what it was showing was that he was on his way to a come-from-behind upset win over Dewey. And in election after election after election, we see presidential approval as a, a pretty good snapshot of the health of the presidency and where he stands and will stand on election day. And my first question is, do you factor in presidential approval into your data? And secondly, is that going to be true this year with Donald Trump? I think that presidential approval ratings are a great predictor of election outcomes. Our model does factor them uh, or it does take them into account. So today I think the president's approval rating is, Minus 14 on net approval, that is, you know, 14 percentage points more of Americans approve of his job as president than, uh, or sorry, disapprove of his job than, than approve. Um, that mm -hmm. would indicate historically that he would lose by five percentage points or even a bit more. Um, and that prediction mm -hmm. is not perfect, but you're right to pick up on its accuracy. I think it's a great benchmark. Um, and in in times when we might expect uh, Joe Biden to be doing better in the national polls, maybe because of this partisan non-response phenomenon, or, or also just because people see him as a, well, as a more stable political force than Donald Trump, and, and could be uh -huh. defaulting him 
defaulting to him now in a way that they don't vote for him in November, this presidential approval metric would be particularly powerful. So, so people should absolutely put stock into it, um, and and just just like the model does. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of models, many electoral college models right now have removed Michigan from battleground status. I've noticed and classified it as more of a lean's democratic state. Is that accurate at this particular moment in your assessment? And if that is accurate, why is Michigan jumping the gun on some of these other battleground states and moving uh, like it is? So our model today thinks Joe Biden would win in Michigan by six percentage points. That's Mm-hmm. Consistent with the with the national uh, the national forecast thinks he would win by seven. So you know in 2015 uh-huh. Michigan voted one percentage point more for Donald Trump than the nation. So this estimate makes makes perfect sense. If Joe Biden really is up, you know, seven or eight points, he should win Michigan pretty handily too. Uh, so 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 the first part, yes, our model thinks it's closer to uh, likely or uh, approaching very likely status for Democrats than the toss-up state that we may have thought it was earlier in the year. Now, I don't actually know how to explain this very well um, as far as the, the differential in Biden's margin there versus other Midwestern states. So, so I'll note uh, uh, Biden is doing worse than he is in Michigan in both Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Um, uh, I don't know if this is just because he's got a you know a couple particularly good states or good, good polls in Michigan, which is uh, the case, or if they're particularly bad elsewhere. Um, Michigan does have a pretty high population of older white voters who seem particularly drawn to Joe Biden. Um, and mm-hmm. I guess I guess I would just say keep your eye on it. I can't make any definitive statement until I interview someone from Michigan, uh, but it, it seems <laughs> it seems like it's sort of ground zero for the the swing from Trump voters to, you know, we had the, we had the Obama Trump voter in 2000 and uh, between 2012 and 2016, I suspect we'll have a lot of uh, Trump Biden voters this time around. Wow. Now, uh, another model that always held true in the past, you take three states, Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio, the conventional wisdom said when two of those three in your president, do your models pretty much show that to be the case this year? So I'll throw a little technical term out here. That's the correlation between states and the national margin. Over the past uh-huh. um, 20 election cycles, Ohio has generally picked the president. Uh, that was true uh-huh. in uh, Barack Obama's year. It's true for Donald Trump. I suspect it will be true for this year as well, and that's because – Ohio is a pretty good representation of what we might call a microcosm of the nation as a whole. It has lots of big urban cities, has lots of non-white voters, but it also has a lot of uh, white voters in rural areas and lots of non-college educated white voters that you know used to work in factories or work in other industries uh, now. Um, and, and I would, I so so my heuristic is to think that whoever's going to whoever's polling ahead in, in Ohio on election day is going to win the election. Now, right now, it's exactly a toss-up state. It's 50-50 Trump-Biden, and uh, it's trending toward Biden, but if he's up by seven points nationally now, if that margin thins at all between now and election day, he's probably not winning Ohio. But 
he mm-hmm. would win Pennsylvania and Florida in that in that scenario. So he would meet your criteria uh, in both Pennsylvania and Florida. Biden has a bit more room, uh, you know, a bit more margin for error, I guess, than he does in, in Ohio. So uh, I would keep those states on your mind. They all have high correlations with the, nat- the national averages, uh, and they, they could very well be swing states again this year. Okay. I'm going to ask you two more questions, and then I'm going to throw it back to David. Number one, here's a statement. If Georgia is a swing state, Donald Trump is in trouble. Is Georgia a swing state? Hey, that statement sounds familiar. I wonder where you got that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, I, I, right. I mean, I, I, I shared that online, I think, even today maybe. That seems right to me. Yeah. Again, we have, if we think about the elections in the terms of, of relative positioning of the state, this sort of partisan lean metric, uh, Georgia has typically voted about five or six percentage points to the right of the nation. So if the two candidates are neck and neck there, and right now it says that Trump has just a 56% chance of winning, that's about as close to a topic as you can get, then you'd expect him to win nationally by about five, percentage, five or six percentage points. That's, what, uh-huh. that's exactly what the national data say. So uh, if, yes, if, yeah, if Biden is winning Georgia on election day He's pretty darn sure Winning the election too Okay Final question is something you also tweeted You said Your election forecast Says that the Democratic nominee Might have to win the popular vote By three percentage points Or more In order to prevail in the electoral College and I was wondering How did you arrive at that Particular number yeah, the the way we arrive at that is that, that uh, well, it's it's in the way the election forecast works. So, so every time it runs, we explore thousands of different scenarios for how the election could go. So the, the computer asks mm-hmm. questions of the data. It says, you know, if Biden beats his polls in this state by five percentage points, uh, well, he's probably going to be his polling margin in similar states by a similar amount. And what does that cause the eventual electoral college margin to mean? Um, and, and on average, across all of the different scenarios, Joe Biden has to win by about three or more percentage points in the national two-party vote, right? So he has to get about 51% of the vote to win in all of these different scenarios to pick up the tipping point state, the state that gives him enough votes in the Electoral College to win, which, by the way, like right now is Pennsylvania, um, uh-huh. uh, to, to be favored in the Electoral College. But I, I, I will remind you, that margin could be even larger than three percentage points. Um, Joe Biden could feasibly win the popular vote by seven or eight percentage points and still lose the election. Now, now that's sort of like an apocalyptic scenario that has nowhere near a high likelihood of winning, somewhere on the order of one or two percentage points today. But, you know, unlikely things happen. Um, I, I think the bigger takeaway here is the, the, the structure of the electoral system in the United States seems pretty heavily tilt, tilted toward Republicans right now in ways that Democrats might not find, find fair or majoritarian. Yeah, oh, boy, tell it all, brother, right there. I thank you for that, Elliot, and I'm going to send it back to David. David? Well, Elliot, there's probably 10 more states that have interesting analysis that we could talk about. 
Um, so maybe we'll get that at a later date if you would be so willing to come on between now and November. Um, but till then, I wanted to ask or let you tell our listeners if they want to see this model, they want to see your other writings or analysis on it, or they just want to follow you on social media, kind of give our listeners some links. Yeah, to view the election model, you can go to economist.com slash US 2020 forecast. And that model updates a few times a day, too. So if you just want to hop on over there in the morning and the evening, you'll be pretty caught up to date. Um, and then I'll put extra analysis on Twitter every day as well. That's, uh, my Twitter handle is at G. Elliot Morris, which uh, what it's always been. I guess it's what it always will be. <laughs> and, um, and, well, the other content about the election forecast will appear uh, in the print magazine. So if you're an Economist subscriber, you'll have a bit more information than everyone else. And you can, well, of course, you can subscribe to it at economist.com. Elliot, you say that, but you're getting bigger every day, so I go ahead and lock in the real G. Elliot Morris for when those uh, fake accounts come out. Uh, so. That might be too long. You're, you're getting bigger way. every time. <laughs> it's funny. All right. Well, thanks for but, having me on. Elliot, this is always a pleasure. Yes. Incredible insight. Pleasure to have you on to pick your brain. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yep. Thank you, sir. Thanks, y'all. Take it easy. Bye. So, all right. That was Elliot Morris of The Economist, just one of the best political number crunchers, if you will. He used a phrase, um, you know, it's early when I was asking him questions. I'm going to throw it out in a paper somewhere. It was uh, such a high-level word. Um, or term, I should say, because it's two words. Uh, but just, but then he can bring it down to where I think anybody could find this content accessible. But now let's get back to Georgia. But we're not going to talk about voter machines. We could probably rail on that for another hour and have new things to say. But they actually finally did count some votes, and it took a while. But we finally know some numbers. Now, one thing that was kind of interesting. Um, I won't say concerning because I guess you just need to get it right if you can't do it fast. But, you know, we went to bed, and it looked like there's going to be a U.S. Senate runoff in, um, in uh, the U.S. Senate race in Georgia on the Democratic side. It looked like there was going to be a runoff on Georgia 13 on the Democratic side, Georgia 7 on the Democratic side. It looked like here in Floyd County um, – that there wasn't going to be a runoff on the sheriff's race on the Republican side. I'm sure if we 159 counties, that happened all over the state. Um, Catherine, how does that change just the dynamics on how people feel about the elections, knowing that they look one way and then you wake up and so many things change? I think even the Bordeaux seat, or say, I should say Georgia 7, she hasn't won it yet, but, um, but the Rob Woodall seat, he currently holds it. Um, that thing took several days to actually um, not be a runoff. What, is, what implications are there? Well, it's very frustrating for the candidates. You know, they're, yeah. they expect to get those results um, and start planning if they have a runoff or start celebrating if they don't. And um, I think it's, it's uh, an unexpected experience. And, um and, and for those of us who analyze um, the races for um, electoral activities, um, it's frustrating because you want to start doling out the money and, uh, you know, helping the campaigns or 
building your own um, IE campaigns, then you can't do it. I mean, I, I really, I, I finally looked at some results today because even yesterday, not all the results were posted on the Secretary of State site. There were some that were still at, you know, 50 to 80 percent uh, reporting. So it was very frustrating. And one of the questions I have, and no one seems to know the answer, is why don't they count the incoming ballots ahead of time? Like, why don't they all just have running counts of those instead of waiting? I'm talking about absentee ballots. Instead of waiting until Election Day, it just seems so silly. Those votes were coming in and have been coming in for weeks. It seems like as much as you can, you vote a you count them ahead of time so that you're, you know, current when you when election day comes. But I don't seem to be able to get a good answer to that. Yeah. Uh, I, I know in some states yeah, you can't open them until the polls close. Um, mm-hmm. so that, then still you can start when the polls close, but that's part of it. Although it seems like you could change it to where maybe you get some people and say, look, you can't leave this room. You've got to – and, of course, we'll give you a bathroom too. We'll bring you food in. And say seven o'clock that morning when polls open, y'all can start counting votes, and um, you're kind of sequestered like a jury. Um, maybe that well, would be a, a in between is, option. I, I, didn't, I didn't really fully think this through because there were quite a few. I don't know. Those would have been. There were there were people who went to the polls because they didn't get their absentee ballots, but that wouldn't have an impact anyway. Um, yeah. It's it's frustrating and. Um, I mean, I guess we should be able to get used to it. I mean, if you want an accurate count and you have, um, you know, all these all these complications, then maybe we just accept that we're not going to get those results the night of the election. It's going to be a couple days, but we need to be aware of that. It should be um, yeah. announced or understood. Because it was well, frustrating. I, mean, I was looking, looking through them all day, Monday, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. Yeah, and that goes back to the computers. If it's tabulating on a computer, I know when I give tests that are A, B, C, D, true, false, it's something that can self-grade. You know, it self-grades. The kids have their uh, response instantly. You would think that it would accumulate all the responses, and there's your box. Um, and so with all the other ish questions we have surrounding, if it can't do that, that would be one of the benefits, and that benefit's gone. But uh, let's get back to these numbers. Tim, what was the most surprising result of the night to you? Well, I really thought there was going to be a runoff in the U.S. Senate race. I, I, I was, Me too. I was pretty confident that, that – uh, there would just be enough votes for that to happen, and it just didn't. And, you know, I know national Democrats were pretty happy that there was no runoff in that Senate race so they could go ahead and turn their attention to the uh, general election. Uh, of course, the supporters of some of the other candidates, uh, you know, in this state were, 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 were not real happy about that. Uh, another thing, I was just certain all night that David Scott 
was going to be forced into a runoff. He just couldn't. He, yeah, just he couldn't get anywhere near fifty percent. And then I find out the next day that he barely did uh, clear that hurdle, and I, I, I was just stunned about that. Uh, Renee Unterman, there's the name. She's done. I mean, she she did she did very 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 poorly. Um, an, another thing I wanted to mention, guys, not a surprise here, but someone we've had is, in the past as a guest on the show, Brooke Siskin, is in a runoff over in the ninth district um, for the congressional uh, seat over there on the Democratic side. And then, David, we have, oh, no, guess who I'm going to mention now. Uh, uh, should our QAnon followers uh, QAnon craziness incarnate Marjorie Green? She got forty percent of the vote up here. She's in a runoff, but what do you think, David? Think we're gonna suffer on election night with that one? Yeah, we've talked about this offline, so let's bring that discussion to the podcast. She's in a runoff. She got over 40% in a huge field. Uh, John Cowan, a physician for Rome, who still ran a very conservative campaign where he's, you know, shooting high-powered rifles, and his signs were like pro-gun, pro-Trump, pro-going back uh-huh. to 1940 or something. I forgot what the other pro was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, <laughs> but it, I, you know, I mean, if he, if he would have put professional on there, they probably wouldn't have gotten any vote in the Republican primary. Um, and so, you know, this guy, he's run, he tried to run as the good conservative, but to me, that party right now, at least in our state is going to go for the biggest crazy they can find. Um, and they've got to not do it until I believe otherwise. I mean, Casey Cagle is far more qualified than Brian Kemp. And, and that was one of the uh, blueprints we've seen others. Um, even as far back as 1992, Pat Buchanan went in the uh, Georgia primary over George W. Bush, David, or George H. W. Bush. David, um, David, but, 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 David, can I inter- yes. let me interrupt you with a question so that you can continue? This yes. stuff that she subscribes to isn't that just a wee bit beyond the bounds of craziness? Far like any other. Yeah, It should be, but I don't know that people know exactly what she stands for. I don't know that people think that she is a Las Vegas massacre denier. I mean, if, if I were John <laughs> Cowan, I mean, and, and this is free advice. If you know him, send this audio to him. Say, look, I'm conservative. I'm not crazy. See if you can get one of those country music uh, um, uh, singers that played that concert. Because I tell you what, if I was playing a concert – and somebody got up in a, a hotel tower and shot at me and all my fans and killed I don't know how many people in the most horrific shooting in American history. If somebody was denying that, I'd speak out against them. I mean, some of these, I mean, you could even find ones that are Republican because they'd be like, I'm still picking a Republican. I'm just picking John Cowan who doesn't believe this nonsense. I mean, we don't know that he does. Um, and then we can, and then there's other things there too. But you run against that, and you actually see. If the voters in your party will have some sanity and get rid of this QAnon, you know, candidate, 
which will be such an embarrassment because here's what likely will happen. We are going to have a Democratic president, a Democratic House, and a Democratic Senate, and now we're going to have the brand-new version of Louis Gohmert uh, representing us, Tim. Um, Catherine, you're from outside the district, but I know you've had to listen to us talk about Marjorie Green. What's your take? She's crazy. It's crazy that people vote that many people voted for her. It's just it's unbelievable. But you know, it's it's the Trump era, so it's not really that unbelievable. Yeah. And and it's I'll tell you what we well, talk about it is. Uh Tim, go on ahead. Well, she I, I tell you guys, she got on television. She's right attractive. She held up her gun, which is the perfect thing to do. She shot at Nancy Pelosi or whatever, which is the perfect thing to do. She'll defend the Second Amendment. She'll stop the spread of socialism. She went town to town, stood on street corners, did it right down here about eight miles from where I'm standing right now on the street corner in Somerville, waving signs, waving at cars, friendly candidate, how you doing, I'm your neighbor, blah, blah, blah. Never mind, I'm an interloper that they, that uh, Karen Handel's campaign skillfully pushed out of uh, the the sixth district race to clear the field. Imagine if Handel had had to put up with her. But, you know... <laughs> You're, you're right, guys. People don't know that stuff about her. It is incumbent upon Dr. Cowan to, you know, come forward with that stuff. I, I agree with you, David. He's got nothing to lose. Why doesn't he get out and say, now, look, this woman believes that Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and George Soros run a worldwide pedophile ring and that Donald Trump was elected to put them all in jail and the blah, 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 you, you know. I mean, that's that's the kind of yeah. nonsense she believes. And they already, he already just run on that and, and run off. Yeah, I, Don't you think? I, I would actually – I would start with the Las Vegas massacre because you know yeah. some of the Republicans around here. If you say, oh, she's attacking Hillary Clinton, she's attacking Barack Obama, it wouldn't matter what she said. That, that's going to fall – or what he said, that's going to fall on deaf ears. Just – Innocent concert goers in Las Vegas just denying that ha- that happened. That's where that's where that uh, guy, um, his name escapes me because I guess I don't watch his. Oh, Alex Jones. You know when he started denying Sandy Hook, that's what really got him in trouble because mm-hmm. that was just so egregious that you know seventy five eighty well, percent of Republicans don't buy that at all. But listen, I want to yeah. come back to your David Scott point and, and kind of tell you I went through Jonesboro today, his district. And I saw so many mm-hmm. David Scott signs. He is popular, or he is—he has that entrenched um, support, and I think it's a lot of student constituent services in Clayton County, which is the core county of that district. It includes a lot of pieces, a lot of other counties, but Clayton's the the complete county there. And, and I think he's done mm-hmm. a good job with constituent services in that county, and that's why. Um, the, you know, the candidates weren't allowed, you know, couldn't get traction, even though there obviously is a move um, to replace him from the left. But um, that's kind of what happened there. He is getting older. Um, it may be that he didn't have too much longer, although that district will probably get redrawn a bit 
Um, and it's going to be interesting to see where that redrawing happens. And he may say, hey, two more, I'm done. And it becomes an open mm-hmm. seat. Um, one last uh, race. Uh, let's talk about that. Carolyn Bordeaux uh, did take the runoff. Is she pretty much the going into this the heavy favorite, Catherine? I think so, yeah. To beat the Republicans. Yeah. Yeah, Tim, you? I, yeah, I think I think she's uh, I think I think I, I, she has avoided a runoff now. I think yeah, she 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 should be favored to win that district. Yeah, I, I think I think people are so impressed by what she did because that race really went on the radar. When Lucy McBath beat Karen Handel, that was on the radar. By the way, uh, yeah. there's a better chance Marjorie Greene's a Congresswoman. Uh, I like a hundred percent better chance she's a Congresswoman uh, in January than Karen Handel is. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't see any reason. I don't see why Karen Handel wins that seat. Um, I think Lucy McBath is an incumbent with that constituent service and a record and everything else. Uh, she's in good shape. Well, we got time for one more final thing. Talking about that U.S. Senate race. Um, yet another race where a highly qualified, actually two highly qualified. I mean, I, I you know, my, my candidate was Mayor Columbus, Teresa Tomlinson, but two highly qualified, well funded, or funded to a point, um, women candidates ran for a statewide seat and did not win the nomination. If I'm not mistaken, the only time on top level seats, U.S. Senate and Governor, that a um, woman has won the primary and got the nomination is Stacey Abrams, and she ran against another woman. Catherine, is this just another race in that incredibly concerning trend in Georgia? Um, well, I would question whether we had two highly qualified women. Who were they? Well, I, I thought, I mean, I didn't want to be ugly because the other day you mentioned, I think we had David Neer on and you brought up um, Sarah Riggs-Amico. Um, I, I think, I mean, I'm more a fan of Teresa Tomlinson's eight years as mayor of Columbus, um, you know, but I, well, but just, I know she has never been elected to anything. Yeah. And she, I, you know, contributed to Trump in 2016. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not sure I would. I mean, I, I, I well, don't okay. agree with you about Teresa Tomlinson, but I don't but, agree with you about Sarah yeah, D'Amico. No, no, was, and that's fine. I, I remember we had David Neer on and you, Interjected about Sarah Riggs Amico, so I, I didn't want to, you know, overlook her for you. Well, I didn't know. I, I, I wanted to interject a, a comment here. You know, the, the, all the heavyweights ran on one side. I still do not understand why one of them didn't peel off and run in the Loeffler seat, which would have been made much more sense for either. Uh, you know, Tomlinson or Sarah Reed's Amico to have jumped in that race, they would have had a much better chance at making the runoff over there than, than they turned out to have where they were. I still do not understand why everybody jumped in yeah. the race against Purdue and nobody jumped over there in the race against Loughlin. I agree. You know, I don't I, understand I, it either. I, I think it was Evan Scrimshaw when we had him on the show. He mentioned how you know, everybody thinks that's going to go to a runoff between Doug Collins and uh, the Democratic, the top Democratic finisher, and then that's going to be a tough race. And I guess they looked at that, the consultants they had said, you know, don't switch over. Because, I mean, the last polling we've got, and I think it'll change 
Matt Lieberman's running neck and neck with Raphael Warnock, and that's pretty surprising. Um, I do think that'll change, but until it does, you have to say, hey, um, that that he may have been a easier candidate to pass up than John Ossoff was. But time will tell. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks again um, for to Elliot Morris for coming on the show, and until next week, that's been the Cozy Vine. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. All right.